Good morning. Good morning. It is great to be back with you. I'm sorry it's under circumstances with uh, Clinton and family being unwell, but it's a real joy to be with you and real joy again to be gathering uh, together in the midst of COVID. Um, we are not sadly today going to be looking at Revelation, but the good news is we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, and if you'd like to turn to that, I'm going to read from the NIV and I'm going to read us the whole chapter. It is an amazing chapter in God's Word. I'm grateful to Clinton for the freedom to choose my own passage for this morning. Uh, And then we're going to look at these verses together. I'm going to read, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll look at these verses together. So Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass, it withers, the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the hollow, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the island as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor is animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold, fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look at the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is God's word. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you this morning that we can gather in Jesus' name. And we thank you and praise you for your word that endures forever, for your life-giving word. And Lord, we pray, frail as though we are, by your Holy Spirit, you might bless us with understanding and encourage us and challenge us and draw us to yourself this morning. Lord, you know how we've come in today. You know what we face as we leave today. And so we pray, Lord, that in your goodness and in your mercy as our Father, you might strengthen us this day in Christ. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our minds, open our hearts. Come dwell within us by your word and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Comfort, comfort my people. What wonderful words. And if you've ever sung or if you grew up with Handel's Messiah, you can't read them without hearing that amazing music playing in your head. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. These are wonderful words. They would have been wonderful for those who heard them first thousands of years ago, and they are wonderful for us today. In fact, they're words that are wonderful, not just for us gathered here, but for all humanity, for a desperate Johannesburg, South Africa, Africa, the world. And I think there are three reasons why they are particularly wonderful before we get into them that I just want to spend a few moments speaking about. I know I was prayed, afraid this preacher would be concise today. Uh, we will get to the end. <laughs> the first reason is this. We live in a world that is beset with trauma and sadness. It is painful to navigate. A world at times where it's hard to know what to say to others. We're very aware at the moment, ravaged by COVID as we are, and its consequences. But it's not just COVID that makes life hard. Barely a week goes by without us encountering someone who has been to another funeral, received a bad diagnosis, is having to say goodbye to people, has had disappointing exam results, is in a relational meltdown, 
or are suffering depression or are dealing with injustices of the past or injustices of the present that still haunt them. Some have struggled even to eat day by day. And I guess all of us, if we've lived any length of time, carry some scars of trauma that we've experienced. It's into this context that words of comfort from Isaiah are so wonderful. A second reason, and a deeper reason, is that ultimately our experience of trauma in life, our experience of sadness, is down to, the Bible says, human sinfulness. The human being is not ultimately a good being, but a fallen being. Ultimately, we are in rebellion against God, and that is due to the judgment of God, due to the judgment on creation and living in a fallen world, due to our own sinfulness, the ultimate cause of all the pain and trauma and discomfort we experience in the world. I know it's not a popular subject to speak about sin. It's not something you'll often find on talk shows, YouTube or TikTok. Especially, I think, in uh, last decades with the rise of human liberalism, where it's assumed that humans are basically good. And yet, I think reality tells a very different story, and the Bible has a very different take. It's not that we're completely evil. We are made in the image of a wonderful God. We know how to love. We know how to give good gifts to our children. We know how to act justly, love mercy. But it's that this image is fundamentally flawed, catastrophically spoiled. One historian, Tom Holland, not not Spider-Man, historian, uh, was in an interview with Glenn Scrivener. I don't think he's a Christian. He's close, but I don't think he's a Christian. But he said this about this idea of the fact that all humans are originally sinful. He says, original sin is the kind of thing that if you're a woke liberal, and I speak from experience, you think, what a terrible thing. But watching the shrillness of people convinced of their own virtue, howling down sinners, dragging them down, you realize that actually the concept of original sin, that we're all sinners, it keeps us all honest. It's incredibly democratizing. Without it, you get a horrible hierarchy of virtue. You get exactly what atheists tend to condemn Christianity for. Christians have always had a sense of their own sin, and it keeps them honest. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission, overseen by Desmond Tutu, who who died recently, he wrote a book about it called No Future Without Forgiveness. And he makes this comment in the book. He says, As I listen to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to the stories of perpetrators of human rights violations, I realize how each of us has this capacity for the most awful evil, all of us. None of us could predict that if we had been subject to the same influences, the same conditioning, we would not have turned out as these perpetrators. This is not to condone or excuse what they did. It is to be filled more and more with compassion, with the compassion of God, looking on and weeping that one of his beloved had come to such a sad pass. We have to say to ourselves with deep feeling, not with a cheap pietism, there but for the grace of God go I. To a sinful world, these are great words, as we'll see, of comfort. And third, 
These are great words of comfort because they show us that God has a good and unstoppable plan. There is an ultimate purpose. And again, this also is countercultural in modern city world that believes or suspects or fears actually there is no ultimate meaning in life. And so the philosophers of our age, those that the trendsetters and influencers of our age, have this sense that they can't grab onto ultimate meaning or purpose in life. It comes out with the new atheists. There's a, a recent book called Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, written by Harari, a, Hebrew, a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He sold tens of millions of books. And this is what he says in Homo Deus. He says, Since there is no script, and since humans feel no role in any great drama, terrible things might befall us, and no power will come to save us or give meaning to our suffering. There won't be a happy ending, or a bad ending, or any ending at all. Things just happen one after the other. The modern world does not believe in purpose. So whether this morning you are going through intense challenges of whatever nature, or again you're aware, deeply aware, of your own sinfulness today, or whether you're wondering, is there really genuinely any reason for living? Is there any meaningful life? Is there any purpose in being alive in this world and everything we see with things like COVID and, and wars and disasters going on? Well, these words are for you. These words are for me. These words are from our God, and they are great words of comfort. And we're going to look at two things. Firstly, what do we know about this comfort and then where does it come from? What do we know about this comfort? And how does it come? Where does it come from? So first, what do we know about this comfort? Well, the first thing, and it might be, uh, it might be something you wouldn't originally uh, initially have thought of, it's a comfort that must be proclaimed. The nature of this comfort is it must be proclaimed. Hence, comfort, comfort my people. And it's not in Isaiah just a casual request to, of one person at one time to go and comfort somebody. But it is an urgent plea to proclaim something that is great again and again and again and again. Like if someone came up with a very simple cure for COVID that would bring incredible comfort, it should be proclaimed and rolled out. And this word of comfort that is being proclaimed is something that is truly wonderful because it meets the needs of the world. And as we'll see, the substance of this comfort is not something like fabric softeners or hot chocolate and marshmallows. It has much more of the sense of being able to breathe again, the sense of life returning, of new strength, of new possibilities, of new hope, of a new future. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In other words, this comfort says your tough times, your traumatic times, your devastating times, your hard times, and the very thing that, that makes that all the case are over. And it's fascinating why, as Isaiah goes on, 
Because the words of Isaiah bring to mind, and you might not have noticed this initially, the sacrificial system in Israel. And it's done here masterfully by Isaiah using the voice in the passive. It has been paid for. The only other time the passive is used like this is in Leviticus for blood sacrifice. Comfort has come because of blood sacrifice for sin. Uh, That phrase, uh, as he goes on, she has received double from the Lord's hand for all her sins. He's not referring to an unjust double punishment, but rather it's a Hebrew idiom that means the exact amount has been paid. It's like paper being folded over. So imagine sin in this paper. Paid double is like it's been doubled up which means the exact amount completely paid for, everything covered. This is the life-giving comfort that Isaiah is to proclaim, that God proclaims. That God proclaims will bring an end to all discomfort, all pain, all suffering, all meaninglessness, and open up hope and possibility that in fact is eternal. Because sin has been paid for completely. It's worth just taking a moment to remind ourselves of how Isaiah 40 fits in the whole book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 39, 1 to 39 is often called the king's part of Isaiah. Isaiah 39 Sounds an ominous note. King Hezekiah, who started so positively, so full of faith, eventually ends up being awed by the Babylonians who send their envoys to him. And he's so taken in by the fact this superpower should come to him, and he seeks to impress them by showing them all the, all the treasures in the temple, how great his kingdom is. He's so flattered by their, by their arrival. He shows them all his wealth, and he, and he reckons he's made a treaty with them. And yet Isaiah warns him, verses 6 and 7 in chapter 39, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon, along with the people. And that prophecy in chapter 39 comes true. The entire of the Jerusalem establishment is deported. The temple is destroyed. The treasures are taken to Babylon. In Jerusalem, there is no longer any king. There is no priest. There are no prophets. Socially, politically, theologically, it is an unmitigated disaster for them as God's people. And it's the realization, though, of this bleak future that Isaiah can see as Hezekiah plays with with the Babylonians that leads him and leads the Lord to inspire him to proclaim Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people. And as Isaiah goes on in the future chapters, he promises a restored city. Think of Revelation 21, 22. A restored king. Think of the king raised up on the throne in Revelation. Even a restored creation in the last chapters of Isaiah, again taken up by John in Revelation. 
And as he goes forward, what emerges is this figure that we'll be familiar of, of a suffering servant who brings comfort because he deals with sin. And so Isaiah 53, we'll read later, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He is the servant with whom God is well pleased. So how, in chapter 40, will this comfort come? Before we're introduced to the suffering servant, Isaiah says it will come because the Lord comes, because God comes. It will come from God. And in verses 3 to 11, we hear he comes as a great king. In verses 12 to 26, he is the unrivaled creator. And then from verse 27, we are assured he really cares the coming of the great king. That's how this comfort will come. Verse 3, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain hill made low. The rough ground shall become level and the rugged places are plain. God will come as a great king. The imagery is very clear. Prepare a processional highway across the entire desert. The king is coming and nothing will stop him. We get some token of this today with celebrities and royalty. They prepare a red carpet for them to walk down. Everyone's kept to the side as they arrive. In Bulawayo a few years ago, as the president then Mugabe was coming, the roads were being resurfaced, potholes filled, obstacles removed, lights restored. But this king is no ordinary king. An entire desert. In fact, between probably the imagery is between Jerusalem and where they would have been in captivity in Babylon. The entire desert is to be turned into a highway. And it's not just going to be impact one community. Verse 5, his presence will be experienced by the whole world. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind will see it together. And when this king comes, his word... Unlike the words of politicians which are here today and gone tomorrow, sometimes gone by lunchtime, his word endures forever. Verse 10, he comes with great power. His right arm is his personal power. He has power to rule, he has power to restore, he has power to recompense, and he comes as a good shepherd. Amazing words in, in verse 11. He gathers lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This king that is coming is to be proclaimed from the mountaintops to all the towns in Judah. It is going to be absolutely transformational. And in fact, it's, it's heralded as literally the gospel. Proclaim this good news, these good tidings. A king of glory whose word endures, who brings power and protection, is coming, so proclaim comfort for my people. 
But he's not simply a great king. Isaiah tells us he is also the unrivaled creator of everything. And verses 12 to 26, you see this repeated again and again and again. There is no one, there is no one like him. Verse 12, he alone held the waters and measured the skies with his hands. He alone weighs mountain on scales. Verse 13, he consulted with no one. Verse 15, nothing challenges his supremacy. In fact, all the nations of the world, with all their military might and all their yattering, are like simply bloop, a drop in a bucket. And therefore, you cannot in any way twist his arm through sacrifice or service. All of nature is insufficient to reward him. Whether it's all the trees of Lebanon to build a fire for his altar, or all the animals for sacrifice. And what about idols? Well, Isaiah says they're nonsense. Imagine you, t- you get a piece of wood, half of it you cook on, and half of it you worship. Verse 22, he exercises complete power over the whole world. Every ruler, every prince, every king, every president, even, as some people believe they're in the sky, every point of light in the sky. He, he calls out every star by name. So, verse 25, who is my equal, says the Holy One. He is the unrivaled creator. And again, I think you and I sometimes forget, we forget the sheer the unique power of God in creation. Let's think about the stars for a moment. Uh, the earth rotates around a star, the sun, the local star in our Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way galaxy contains about 100 billion stars. To travel from one end of the Milky Way to the other would take, I'm told, I don't think it's been done, 100,000 light years and one light year is 9.5 trillion kilometers. The scale is phenomenal. There are about 34 galaxies in the group that the Milky Way is a part of in the Virgo cluster. And then there are hundreds and hundreds and thousands, millions of other galaxies. It is estimated that there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. Think how huge it is. Maybe read these verses next time you're in the bush, because in Joburg you only get to see a few stars each night. In Babylon, they worshipped the stars. Isaiah says, he brings out the starry host. One by one, he calls forth each of them by name. It's a lot of names. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. In Genesis chapter 1, it's almost a little throwaway comment on day 4. He also made the stars. <laughs> Closer to home, living on planet Earth, 
Uh, there's a book that came out recently called Life on the Edge, The Coming Age of Quantum Biology. And in that, they talk about how amazing just light is and what happens in terms of bringing life on Earth. Let me read this little section. Glance up at the sky for one second and a column of light 186,000 miles long descends into your eye. In that same second, the Earth's plants and photosynthetic microbes harvest the solar light column to make about 16,000 tons of new organic matter every second in the form of trees, grass, seaweed, dandelions, giant redwoods, and apples. God made that. He is the unrivaled creator. No wonder all the trees of Lebanon are insufficient for altar fires for this God. Uh, John Frame uh, has a humorous... Uh, you, don't, you don't often think of large doctrine books on doctrine of God as being humorous, but he has a humorous footnote uh, in his great book, The Doctrine of God, about creation, about creation out of nothing, as the Bible affirms. God created everything out of nothing. He says, imagine Einstein is right and matter and time and space are all related and God creates out of nothing. He says, imagine, if you will, trying to make something with nothing to make it from and nowhere to put it and not even a moment of time in which to do it. God is the unrivaled creator. He's the one that brings us comfort. The great king the unrivaled creator, and he really cares. Derek Kidner says, the wrong inference from God's transcendence is that he's too great to care. The right one is that he's too great to fail. Which is why these words of comfort have become so precious to the Lord's people. It's why they're not empty words. Comfort, comfort my people. When the world of the Israelites was shattered through sin and judgment, through international political upheaval, this is the message God gives them. When Job's life was shattered by those horrendous circumstances out of his control, this is the message he wanted Job to hear about his greatness in creation. When the church is undergoing persecution, and the message, this is the message we need to hear. When your world is shattered or your world is going through upheaval, when you feel as though you're at the mercy of powers beyond you, when circumstances conspire against you, when your nights and days are filled with tears, when the question rings out, why? This is what the Lord longs for you to know. And I think sometimes we take for granted just how astonishing this is. How astonishing it is that a God who's so great should care so much. God is not like Sauron in Lord of the Rings who seeks power for his own gain, still less like one of the Roman gods or Greek gods with malicious rivalry and petty torturing and killing and fighting one another. No, Isaiah proclaims the Lord the Holy One, unrivaled in power and greatness and majesty, far from being aloof, 
far from being at war, far from finding humanity a nuisance or an inconvenience, our great God loves us. Nowhere in human thought are there such seeming incongruous truths in a single deity, such sovereignty and yet such care, such power and yet such unconditional love. He has complete and ultimate freedom and yet he shows such covenant commitment. Israel have known this in their history. They were nothing in Abraham, and yet he chose them. They couldn't have children, and yet he nurtured them, and along come Isaac. When they end up in, in Egypt and they've grown into a nation, he rescues them from slavery. He gives them their constitution. He gives them a land. He gives them then priests to intercede, prophets to bring his word, kings to rule, all the time revealing himself to them in faithfulness. It's why he asks, verse 27, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. No wonder these verses are so often on cards and posters and memes and Bible covers and T-shirts. What wonderful words of comfort to those who first heard them to those who then were in Babylon, but even more to us. And I say even more because as we come, read on in the Bible and come to the New Testament, there's no doubt that these verses are actually bringing us to Jesus. All four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, point out that John the Baptist is the voice of the one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. And John the Baptist is there preparing for Jesus. And the Jesus you and I love and worship, if you're a Christian here this morning, is the great king. Remember, his public ministry begins with him announcing the good news of the kingdom of God is at hand. He's the one who reveals the presence of God to all mankind as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. He's the one whose word endures forever. In fact, he is the word made flesh. He is the very power of God, although ironically seen in his crucifixion. He is, as Isaiah looks forward to, the good shepherd. The king who commands, repent, believe the good news. The king who commands, follow me. And it's also through Jesus, as we're reminded again and again in the New Testament, Colossians 1.15 onwards, for example, 
It's through him that everything was made. He is the Lord of all creation. John begins his gospel that way. He's beyond all measure. He's beyond all comparison. He's beyond all rival. It's his hands that flung stars into space. He pitched a tent in the sky for the sun. He's the one at whose bidding storms are stilled. Who can feed the hungry, who heals the sick, who at his word the dead are raised. He's the one who restores everyone who comes to him, who doesn't turn anyone away, who welcomes everyone to his comfort. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Jesus who renews our strength so that we can rise on wings like eagles, run and not grow weary, walk and not be faint. It's Jesus who brings that comfort by dealing with our sin. He goes to the cross, which shows his power, so that you and I can be completely and utterly forgiven. Every part of our sin covered over, doubled over, and covered. It's so that you can breathe again in freedom so that you can be born again to new life and have the endless eternal possibilities of new life with him in a whole new creation with incredible hope and unstoppable purpose and eternal future. It's why the gospel is proclaimed as a gospel of comfort 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves received from God. Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God even when creation seems so imposing and formidable, even when viruses rampage across the globe, or cells in our body multiply out of control, or evil men succeed and wars rage, or alternative powers seem so impressive, or our sin seems to overwhelm us and judgment feels heavy. As you and I go into this week, to hopefully bring God's grace wherever we go in a broken world under the judgment of God in a sinful world in a world where, which seems, where life seems to be robbed of purpose let's go with these words ringing in our hearts and being proclaimed by our lives and our lips Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her. Her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. As we close, let's pray together. Let's pray. Lord, as we'll sing in a moment, we rejoice that you are king. 
You are such a mighty, powerful king whose word endures forever, whose glory will be seen by all mankind, a king who comes with his right arm of power to restore, to recompense, to, to bring healing, and yet who gathers arms, lambs in his arms and ca- 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 carries them close to his heart. We thank you as we rejoice at your king that you're also the unrivaled creator. You, Lord, call out the stars one by one. Not one of them is missing. You're the one who causes life and light. Your power is unstoppable. Your sovereignty unrivaled. And yet you're also a God who cares so deeply for us seen in Christ. Our sin has been paid for double. You invite us to come to you for rest and for comfort. Lord, please forgive us for where we complain. My way is disregarded by my God. Please strengthen again today, Lord, in this truth that you know all things and that you love us so deeply in Christ that all our sin is forgiven and our lives lie in your hands and nothing can pluck them from that. And then, Lord, as again today, with whatever we're facing, we turn again to you, Lord Jesus. Please renew our strength so that we may soar on wings like eagle. We may run and not be faint, walk and not grow weary. Lord, please strengthen us as we leave here to live again this week for your delight and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.